Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Deuteronomy 14, 22-29 Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Stephanie Carr, and I don't, I don't know if any of you don't know me. I'm one of the youth pastors here at the church and um, have the privilege of trying to unpack this kind of odd scripture for us this morning. Um, as has been mentioned, we're in the middle of Eastertide, and we've been really focusing over the last several weeks of, on celebrations. Um, and this has been really fun for us, even with the youth, um, as we walked through Lent. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. As we walked through Lent, um, we had different groups that were practicing um, giving up things for Lent. And so we had four different kind of categories. And every week after youth group, we'd, whoever was kind of um, doing something in that category would join together and kind of talk about how is it going, what's been hard. Have, I mean, were there any, like, was there any place where you maybe you messed up and you need to do things differently next week? Like, not in a shaming way, but just sharing. And I found that that process of going through that as a community was really helpful. And the four categories were, like, some people were giving up things that had to do with food. Other people were giving up things that had to do with um, fasting from media. Others were giving up things that had to do with their body image, like going for 40 days without makeup, which for young people is it's hard for all of us. But that's a, that's, I was so impressed that some of them did that. And then um, <clears throat> there's another category of things, people that were giving up their time to do something different. So like waking up early to read their Bible. Or um, another example was somebody was writing letters to somebody every, to a different person every day. And I just, that process of going through it together was really powerful. And, and I just found myself reflecting on that through that season of Lent. Well, then comes Eastertide, which was what all that preparation was for. And our celebration in, in our minds needs to be just as intentional and just as um, upheld, if not more so. So if Lent is 40 days, 
Eastertide is 50 days. If our practices in Lent kept us um, in kind of this desert experience with God, our celebrations should even more so be reminding us of the victory and the goodness that comes because of Christ's work on, on the cross and on the day of Easter and the resurrection. So it's been fun to think about this. And especially in light of all these different celebrations, um, we've really kind of focused on sometimes like the odd ones and the counterintuitive ones. So for instance, the last couple of weeks we've looked at um, celebration through repentance, celebration through reconciliation, and today we're looking at celebration through offering. And specifically, we're looking at this passage in Deuteronomy um, that has to do with tithing and kind of this odd command that God gave the Israelites very specific people in a very specific time a long time ago, and what in the world does that have to do with us? So my hope is that if we can sink deep enough into this passage and kind of unpack it, the purposes and kind of the core principles of what God was asking the Israelites will come and and will illuminate for us some of the things that we need to learn, not only about tithing, but about celebrating. And these things are crucial for us as we learn to live out our lives as the people of God. So let's just kind of start with the verse. It's uh, Deuteronomy 14. And my recommendation, I don't know, I, if it's totally up to you, but I would maybe like keep your finger there because it might be helpful to refer back to that as we go. Um, but Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. And it starts off by telling the Israelites that they needed to give 10% of, their, of the fruits of their labor. Um, and this was like the very first part of what they were harvesting. So the grain, 10% of the grain off the top, um, the new wine and the new oil, which usually referred to like the first press, which was kind of the most pure, like um, the pure, the purest form, part of what they were pressing out of the oil or out of the, the grapes. Um, and their firstborn livestock, which is, you know, for most of us, like, I don't know, I grew up in the church uh, so my story is very much like every dollar you get, a dime goes into this little jar, and when the jar gets full, then we'd bring it to the church, and that was just kind of what we did. Um, but this is a little bit different than that. Um, so the unique thing about this being the first fruits of their labor was not necessarily that these were the best things of, of what they were harvesting, but these were the things that they had in their hands. These were the things that they were sure of. These were the things that... Um, that that they could count on because they had them. And for uh, a subsistence farmers, who, which is what the Israelites were, that was a really big deal. And I think that's something that we don't quite understand being from where we are from. Um, when we want chicken, we go to the grocery store and we buy it in a little nice styrofoam thing. It's already cleaned. I don't even have to recognize that there was at one time blood in this stuff. There's no bones. There's no skin. I just like take it and I cook it, right? Um, Uh, So that's like one way of eating chicken. But when our family was younger, uh, we were traveling to India quite a bit, and we were working with our ministry partners in Ukrul, in in the very northeastern part of India. And our ministry partners there were our Nehemiah Project. We still work with them as a church. And uh, so we would take groups of students over there, and we'd land in Delhi and then get onto a really tiny plane and have another like four or five-hour flight to get to this little tiny state called Manipur and land in their capital in in fall and go like through this like teeny tiny airport and in fact like the customs process was they literally would line us up and hand write out our first name last name age birthday address uh, mother's name mother's maiden name father's name father's last name I don't have a maiden name like I mean it was just like the process was so monotonous and it took us hours to get through these lines and then we would get into these jeeps and 
travel another four or five hours up into the mountains to the main city that we were working in called Ukrul. And a beautiful place in the world, beautiful people, um, very different existence from what we are used to. From there, we would work a lot in the city, but then there were times that they would take us out even to even more remote villages. And we would pile our students um, onto these flatbed trucks and spend another like four hours driving like 16 miles on these dirt roads. And sometimes there'd be these mudslides and we'd have to get out and move the mud and then keep going. And I mean, it was just remote as you can imagine. And when we were out there, the existence of most of the people were they were subsistence farmers, which meant that they didn't have another vocation. They didn't go to work and then when they came home, like plan the food that they were going to eat. They, their main existence was to um, harvest, to plant, to raise the food and the things that they needed to live on. Very, very different relationship to the land and to their food than what we have. And there's something we can learn from that, I think. So, for instance, we were, uh, they had this like little yard full of chickens in this one village, and they'd say, Jovi, what's your favorite chicken? And here my little three-year-old is like, oh, that one. So she picks her favorite chicken, and they mark it with a string, and then they like take it around the corner of the building. And they're like, Jovi, you want to come? And I'm like, nope, Jovi does not want to come. <laughs> She's good. She's really good just knowing that her favorite chicken got picked for something special. <laughs> and, uh, but then sure enough, like that would be dinner. So, I mean, all all of this to say their relationship with what they have at some point we had to stop we had to like pace ourselves and how often we were traveling there because it wasn't a matter of whether or not we had enough money to pay for the food that our team would consume when we were there it was a matter of whether or not they had enough food to provide for us while we were there it wasn't about money it was about what was available and that I think is exactly the kind of situation that these words are being spoken to it's not God saying, hey, 10% out of your abundance. It's 10% out of what you have, what is in your hands. And these things represented the future for them. It represented their future seeds, their future crops. It represented their future offspring of their animals. Um, it was the assurance that they had with them. And this was risky. This was very risky for them. To, it, it was, a, in essence, them, saying, them giving these things was them saying, if we are going to have a future, God has to come through. The rest of what comes in is going to have to be enough because this part is God's. And that is profound. The next thing that we read in the, just that first verse is that we are to eat the tithe in the presence of the Lord, which really caught me off guard. Like, what? We're eating this? Like, I thought there was another purpose for these things. But really, no, we're, we're to consume them in the presence of the Lord. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But this, again, in the presence of the Lord is referring to this. It was a pre-temple existence. So the temple wasn't, Jerusalem didn't even really exist at this point because they hadn't entered into the promised land. But God was going to establish his name somewhere. And that was where they were to take this. And in the presence of the Lord, they were to eat this tithe, um, which really links it to this act of worship. And we learn from these verses that the, the purpose behind all of that um, was that they were, to, they were to learn to revere the Lord always, is what the verse says in 23. Um, they were to fear the Lord. And this, in this way, they were to remember their dependence on God. I want to skip back a little bit to Deuteronomy, which is just a fascinating book. Deuteronomy 8 kind of gives us a little bit more um, context into what this what this phrase means to, to remember our dependence or to learn to revere the Lord always or to fear the word, to fear the Lord. Um, in Deuteronomy 8, well, let me just give a little bit of context to Deuteronomy in the first place. It, Deuteronomy literally, it translates to second law. 
So this period of time for the Israelites was they had, um, they had come out of Egypt, they had wandered for 40 years, and this was the second generation. So that first generation had all kind of passed away, and the second generation was ready to take the mantle and to go into the promised land. But before they did so, Moses was going to deliver to them again the law that God had given their their fathers and mothers, um, the generation before, and to reemphasize that this was part of their role as God's people. So he's given the second law, and verses or chapters one through eleven really establishes the why of the law, and and that being that this law is what sets you apart. This law is what makes you my people. This is what lifts you up and makes you distinct in the world, distinctly mine. Um, and so in this way, this, uh, Moses is, is sharing with them, this is what it means to be the people of God. And then chapters 12 through 26, which is where our main chapter comes from, are the specific laws. And we can't totally correlate them directly to our modern world because, again, they were given to a very specific people in a very specific time. But again, we can discern some of the core principles of what God was asking of them. And then the, the rest of the book is really uh, Moses' final speech and his death. But in this chapter 8, I think we find um, some very significant um, background as to what it, why these laws were being given to the Israelites in the first place. And the, what, where Moses starts is he really leads them through their past. He says, the Lord led you these past 40 years. Um, he wanted to know what was in your heart, in the, in the desert, in the time of Lent, in these moments of wilderness, is where God can truly see what kind of people we are at our core. What kind of people are we? What is true in the core of us? Um, I don't know how many of you maybe have felt like you've been through a, a dark night of the soul experience yourself. There's several um, desert fathers that talk about this experience. But I know for myself, I went through a period of time just feeling like there wasn't, there wasn't much that I could feel about my faith. I could, would come into worship and it was just like, like dust in my mouth. Or I would go to the Word and think, oh, God is going to meet me with some kind of incredible truth and illuminate something, and it would just words on paper. And I would pray and I would think, God, you're gonna, you're, you've got to remind me that you're here. And yet it just felt silent. And in those moments, I feel like God was um, calling me to something deeper. He was, he was asking, who are you really in the core of who you are? If I never showed up again, what would your worship be? And um, I know for myself, what was really helpful in that time was looking back on my life. And looking back on my life, God had shown up in so many ways and so many unquestionable things had happened where it was truly him that I couldn't question his existence in that time. As much as I wanted to, as easy as it would have been to just like walk away and find something else that would be fulfilling in life, I couldn't because I was locked into these experiences that, with God that I'd had previously where he had shown up unquestionably. And, and so it, it was a matter of, okay, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other and trust that at some point God is going to show up again. At some point, I'm going to be assured of his presence, but until then, I'm going to learn what it means to be faithful in a way that I've never had to learn before. And that was truly the, what was happening for the Israelites in the desert as well. So as Moses sends them on, he tells, he's, um, he'll be staying behind, as, most, as you will remember from the story, but he calls them to remember these things in their story that God has done for them. He says, recall your story from Joseph to Exodus. God has been doing these amazing things for you. He has forged you not only as the people of God in this desert, but as a people, a collective people together. You've been bonded in ways that, that is, are very unique. Um, there's a phrase, I don't even know where I heard it the first time. I think it's maybe things that, a phrase that rabbis 
say about the Israelites, but um, I don't know who to credit this to. But this phrase is, it took four days to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And it was their way of, of really linking themselves with God. So in this recalling of the wandering, um, it says in this passage, oh, I didn't read the passage. I was going to. Sorry. Let's read it now. Um, Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through um, 10, I believe. It should be on the screen. Yep, 1 through 18, sorry. All right, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promises on oath to your, that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to, to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of, your Lord, of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. Which is curious, that's also a phrase that's in Psalm 23. I love that. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So there's so much in this passage, but um, what, the things I wanted to point out were what we already talked about with remembering the story, um, that God brought them into the desert. He caused them to hunger, which was a very physical reality. And through that physical reality, he was teaching them the spiritual reality that they were dependent on him. They, he fed them with manna, which was different than any other bread, it says. He, they had to trust that God would pro, not only provide it the amount that they would need, but he would provide it when they needed it. And that was really unique about this manna bread. And in all of that, they learned to trust the Lord's provision and his sustenance. There's a family from our church, and I'm not going to say their names because I didn't tell them I was going to be talking about them, but they have adopted um, several children, and they are brilliant at um, understanding the bonding process that happens between a child and a parent. And the kids that they've adopted have not been the ones with easy, nice, clean, neat stories, which I don't know any of us that have nice, clean, neat stories. Um, but these, their, their bonding process that they went through was to make up for... They, well, 
One day I was talking with the, the husband, and he was telling me about, like, the typical bonding process for a, a child and a parent is the child thousands of times will experience a need of some sort, and thousands of times that same person will come and meet that need, that same person or persons, mother or father. Um, and by that, the child learns to trust, and that bond is created. And when that's broken, you have to do a lot of extra work to actually make that, to create that bond in different ways. So in this story, I just relate that so much to what's happening with the Israelites and with God in the desert. Here they are experiencing the need of being hungry. They're experiencing the need of their feet not swelling and how to survive the hot land and how to find water in a place where there's not water readily available. And yet God meets these needs and thus bonds his people to himself. And I, I just think that's such a beautiful picture. But then Moses goes on to, to really warn the Israelites the challenges that they're going to face in living in abundance. This is a new thing for them. They've, they're used to being slaves. They're used to being nomads. But they're not used to living in a land where everything is, is so lush and so beautiful. <clears throat> but Moses goes on to describe there's going to be streams and pools of water and springs flowing in the valleys and the hills. This land is going to have wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey. Um, bread won't be scarce. The land, this is a land where the rocks are iron and there's copper for you to find in the hills. But the command that comes right after that is that when you eat and are satisfied and when you pray, then, then you praise the Lord, which I'm not sure if this is the origin for this, but I do know that the Jewish tradition is that at a meal, they pray after the meal and not where we would typically pray before a meal. And I, I think that, I don't know, I'm linking it to this because I think that's, um, it says when you eat and are satisfied, then praise the Lord. So maybe that's where that came from. I don't know. Um, but I know, notice this art also points out some of the temptations in abundance. The temptations are that we would forget the Lord, that our hearts might become proud, that we might say, my power and my strength have produced this wealth. There's this myth that comes of self-sufficiency, when in reality, it's he who gives us the ability to produce wealth. In all of this, um, God was confirming his relationship um, with his people, and that's where he blesses and we depend so in all of this, we, it, it's, um, the, the confirmation, the purpose is to confirm our right relationship with God. I think we often misunderstand some of the Jewish approaches to the law. A lot of times we think, oh, they're so burdened by that, or there's this legalism with it. It's a works-based um, faith. And I'm sure maybe that's true for some people. But I know that the majority of the Jewish people that I've interacted with, it's not a burden and it's not legalism, but it's a way of practicing. It's a way of training and marking themselves as God's people. It's similar to our approach to maybe the spiritual disciplines. How do we become people who, are, um, who can separate out this sense of true self and false self? Well, we sit in quietness enough to actually be able to distinguish the difference. Um, how do we become less dependent on the things that sometimes we just go to for quick fix comfort? Well, we fast from those things and we practice going without them and practice depending on God in a different way. That's what we think about all these embodied practices. So let's skip back over to, to Deuteronomy 14 and we'll keep unpacking. I think if we, we kind of got through like the main section of the command, but there's all these allowances that come afterwards. And so again, if we look through these allowances a little bit more, then we might understand a little bit more the purpose or the core principle behind all of this. Um, it continues on in verse uh, 24. If the place is too distant for you um, and you've been blessed by the Lord 
and you can't carry your tithe with you because the place where the Lord has chosen to put his name is too far away, then you're allowed to sell your stuff, um, sell it where you live, take the money. And in fact, one translation, it talks about binding the money to your hand, which was a practice that they would do with like their super valuable things. So someone had to go to the work of like cutting their hand off in order to get this. I don't know if that's true, but they would have to go to like a lot more work to get this from like it's it's it just declares a how valuable this stuff was. So it was a pricey thing. Um, and once you get to the place where God establishes his name, then buy whatever you like. You could buy a sheep, you could buy a cattle, you could buy a steak, you could buy a lamb chop, you could buy um, wine, you could buy any other fermented drink. But <clears throat> whatever you do, get what your heart desires. Get what you're going to enjoy. And eat with your household in the presence of the Lord. So here's this like, command to eat again. And not only that, but when you're doing that, rejoice. So it's setting the table for this celebration that we're talking about today, right? In other words, he's saying feast abundantly and lavishly. Um, this, was, this would be a tenth of their money, and he's telling them to blow it all on one meal. That's pretty significant, right? That's like go get your steak and your Japanese whiskey. I mean, I don't know what our version of that would be, but it's, it's quite extravagant. Um, this is not actually good management, but it is really good dependency on God. So the purpose here we see is to enjoy our dependence. God is saying, I don't eat your tithes. I don't need them. I don't need you to give, but you need you to give. You need you to give because you need to remember this right order of the universe, this right order of relationship with me. Because even what you give me, I'm going to give it right back to you. And I'm going to demand that you enjoy yourselves in the process. <clears throat> So then it goes on a little bit further, and it, tell, it delineates some of like the secondary purposes of the tithe. And this was um, the tithe also was the system of provision, which is how we most know of it today, right? So it's to support the Levites who don't have an inheritance of their own, which is like support the pastors. Um, it's to support your town or your community, like your church. It's to support the foreigner, the orphans, the widows. So there's these like justice or missional kind of purposes behind all of this. And in our American ethic of efficiency, like, we tend to link onto these things because these things are the ones that make sense to us, right? Like, this is the, this is the way that you, this, it, it makes sense. Like, this is what you're paying for. Um, to go blow it on a meal doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, okay, I get that, God. That's like a nice, it's a nice sentiment. But really, these are the important things, right? Um, but that's switching those purposes around. And I don't think we can totally do that without losing something, in our minds, we think the tithe should be sacrificial and sacrifice should hurt. And all of this is for others and for God because they need us, right? You're catching like, the switching of order here. And we're not totally wrong with those things. Like Those things are necessary, and there's a reason God includes them. There's a reason why they're provisions. Um, but the first and foremost, the tithe is about being in right relationship with God. This celebration that he demands of us forces us to realize it's not about those things. It's about recognizing your place with me and my place with you, my place with you to bless you, your place to depend on me. <clears throat> Israel's life was to be marked by this joyful obedience. Israel was to live in such a peculiar way that she was to draw people, to attract people, to recognize and to remember God. Flannery O'Connor says, You shall know the truth and the truth will make you strange. In all of this, it's the Lord is blessing the work of your hands so that you can bless others. But you have to first recognize the true blessing of all of that in the first place. So our purpose here is be blessed to be a blessing. 
And then I want to lock in on the phrase at the end, the work of your hands. We are called into partnership with God from the very beginning, in the very beginning of the garden. We are called to be part of his creative work, to be part of his cultivating work, to manage things well, and to add our kind of stamp um, or our, our unique ideas and, and thoughts to in the same way that God brought his creativity and his ideas into this universe, we are to add and to be partners in that with him. So this abundant and fruitful provisions, even the ones that exist in the promised land, the water and the copper and the the fields of barley and, and vines and all of those things, they're abundant and they're fruitful and they're provisions, but they require partnership. They require work. They don't just appear without the effort of the Israel, Israel, Israelite people. Um, rabbi Jonathan Sachs has been a recent rabbi that I've loved learning from. He's um, a Jew, obviously Jewish, and he lives in Great Britain. But he writes a lot about this partnership with God in, um, in ways that are beautiful and actually illuminate our, our perspective as Christians, too. Um, but he translates the blessing that Moses gave over the tabernacle. So while they were in the desert, the Israelites would travel around and they'd have this tent where they would, um, God's presence would dwell in the tent. And when they were first creating it, it came together by the work of the hands of the people who helped engineer it, um, construct it, put all of their artisan um, efforts into creating the, the symbols of, of like the Ark of the Covenant. And like this was all stuff that they had used their hands to create. And as Moses, um, as it's all coming together and as he's like blessing it to establish it as this place of worship, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs translates his words to say, May it be God's will that, the pre- that his presence rests in the work of your hands. Let me say that again. May it be God's will that his presence rests in the work of your hands. And that meant something very specific for that tabernacle in that time, but I think it also means something very specific for us. But we also have this misconception, again, maybe as Americans, maybe as humans, I don't know, um, misconception that the only work that God is present in is the work overtly done in ministry or done for the right reasons or some holy calling. And I don't think we can pull that from the text here because the work that God is talking about, the work of their hands was the everyday monotonous work of farming, of raising cattle, of harvesting. I think all of us can relate with the temptation to, on a Friday afternoon, after a long week, sit down on the couch, maybe with our favorite TV show and maybe a favorite beverage, or I don't know, like, sit there and ask the question, does this work matter? I'm tired. Does why I'm tired matter? Does the things that I'm tired from matter that I gave myself to those things? I think we can often become obsessed with the grandiose, with things that give us recognition, with um, large-scale movements, with heroism. But then what becomes of the ordinary? I was reading an article that kind of was highlighting this theme, and uh, it quoted this man, Herman Bavnik, who I I don't actually know who he is, but he says these really great words, so I'm going to read them anyway. The ordinary man who honorably fulfills his daily calling before God hardly seems to count anymore. He does nothing, or so it is thought, for the kingdom of God. In the view of many today, to be a real Christian requires something extra, something out of the ordinary, some supernatural deed. And so it is that the power and the worth of Christian faith is not appraised according to what a man does in his common calling, but what he accomplishes above and beyond it. 
The article, the author of the article goes on to say, American Christianity has, by and large, bought into the world's understanding of what it means to live a life that matters. Scale and excitement are key. Vocations that truly matter in American Christianity, ones that receive recognition, need to be exciting, exotic, and immense. Because of our obsession with heroic Christian vocations, callings that are by design small, ordinary, repetitive, and mundane are on the outside looking in. In our worldview, finite callings have limited access to infinite meaning. And I, I know I have shared in the past about um, my journey into motherhood, which was not very graceful. Um, but I, I remember in the middle of the night, um, tired, sleepless, obviously, um, longing to be back in, in the places where I felt most comfortable, um, nursing my baby and impatient to get back to like the real work. Um, to, to, to get back to the places where all the things that I had prepared for, all my college education or my, um, all my experience had kind of like been leading up to. Like those were the real things that I was supposed to be doing. And here I was stuck in this nursery nursing this baby. And I found in those moments um, the challenge to myself of like, what are you talking about? Like how can you think that this work is any less real? than the work that, lays for you in, that waits for you in your office. And in fact, isn't this the more real work? And I remember in those moments being really challenged that parenting was really the ultimate discipleship experience, right? That the work I was doing of, of being with my baby in that moment and loving her and pouring myself into her well-being was really the work that needed to be elevated in those moments. Those were refining moments. They were humbling moments. And they elevated for me some of the, of the mundane that was easy to overlook or easy to discount. I love that Brother Lawrence, who actually Angela shared some quotes from his work a couple of weeks ago, um, Teresa of Avila, both of them have prayers that recognize the Lord as the, pot, the Lord of the pots and the pans. And I, I love that. There's another kitchen sign that I saw recently. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. Um, but it's here that we have to recognize that we are called into partnership of creation and cultivation with God. Um, I, this is also from that, this article that I was sharing from. Um, it's on the screen, so you can focus on the words. But I think these, these vocations are, are uplifted in this, in this quote. A child carefully draws a picture for a sick friend. A software engineer creatively develops a new application, enabling businesses to coordinate. An orderly in a retirement home joyfully plays cards with lonely residents. A biologist painstakingly investigates a new algae. A poet patiently wrestles a stubborn couplet to the ground. A manager skillfully cultivates a working group marked by trust and collaboration. And this is from this article, Moms, Marchers, and Managers, Priests, All Three. Behind me, Angela has been weaving, which is, again, a very monotonous process. I don't know how many of you have been locked into the work that she's back and forth and back and forth and making sure that every string is in the right place. And these strips that she's using are from their cast-offs from other projects that had some other intention and some other meaning and some other purpose behind them. And here they're being used as remnants and as kind of the ordinary pieces, the leftover pieces. But I love this, I, this, what this illustrates for us, because even the monotonous process of doing something back and forth, when we can stand back and look at the whole picture, we see something different. And we see how God might establish himself in that kind of work, in that kind of faithfulness, in that kind of drudgery, and yet there's goodness in it. 
So in all of this, we find that our purpose, um, our purpose is that he establishes the work of our hands. That God establishes this work, and then he asks us to recognize that by offering back to him the first fruits of these labors, he then graciously offers it back to us to enjoy. So for all of us, what does this mean? How do we pull apart some of these like, key concepts, some of the core principles from this command, and translate it into our time and space here? And that's a challenge. I don't actually have a ton of answers for you in this. Um, so sorry. But I think, just as for the Israelites, this is a calling into right posture and right relationship with God. It's that for us as well. This idea of a tithe of our work being a celebration of God's provision and our dependence on it, it laughs in the face of how we often approach these kinds of commands in the first place. In regards to the tithe, maybe we don't approach tithing at all. We're not in the habit. It really doesn't matter. And it's never been explained to me in a way that actually makes sense. Um, I don't think it's actually, I don't know that my contribution would be that important. Um, maybe we approach it as philanthropists. We give because they need. Um, we give out of our own supplies. We give out of our own ability. Whatever our approach, this passage calls us to reposture ourselves as the dependence of God and that that be our first and foremost um, purpose in, in offering anything back to God. Our abundant, filled society should take some cues from Moses' warnings to the Israelites. The temptations are the same. The myth of self-sufficiency, that we would forget God, that it's my power and my strength that has produced this wealth, that these, these things, that if we continue down these roads, these temptations will cost us our soul. We become lost as God's people when we aren't recognizing our right place in relationship to him. And this is completely countercultural. It's back to, to Flannery O'Connor's words. It, to do this would make us strange. To recapture this spirit of offering requires something risky and radical. We have to seek for the new ways to recapture the core principles here. And it's twofold. We have to reimagine our tithing, but we also have to reimagine our work. Um, do, we, uh, do we uplift even the most ordinary of tasks as, God's, as God bathed? Truly, it's truly a challenge to figure out, but it's about posture. What are our first fruits? Um, it's about right living. It's about right posture. It's about right relationship with God in our work and with our wealth and our abundance. Um, in a second, Jordan and Manuel are going to come up, and they're going to share a, a song for us. And, and my desire is that this song would become a prayer for us as we try to do this imagining work ourselves. Again, I'm not giving you any answers but I am giving you the space to think, what does it mean now for God, um, for me to be in right posture and in right relationship with God? i 
So my benediction for us today is that in the true spirit of Moses' words as he blessed the work of the Israelites' hands, that it would be God's will that his presence would rest in the work of your hands. And may the peace of Christ be with you all. Make sure to stick around. There's food in the back and all kinds of time to enjoy each other.